0: So good morning, everybody, and uh, uh, welcome to uh, our fellowship again this week. Just want to say by way of uh, a special announcement that of the notice board at the back there, uh, we've got uh, a church meeting coming up in a few weeks where um, we've got some suggested or proposed changes to our church constitution. And uh, the idea is that the changes are in red. Most of them are cosmetic, and you don't need to get too emotional over them. Uh, But if you want to compare them, then look at, uh, there are two of the originals that are hanging on bits of string, so you can look at that. And if if, you've got any questions, then do please talk to me or one of the uh, elders, and uh, we'd be glad to try and answer those before the meeting itself. It would be great if we didn't have to spend too long talking about these things, because this document is not as important as the scriptures that we have And it's just one of those things that uh, we need to uh, refer to occasionally. But as you know, in our fellowship, we refer to God's Word first and foremost every time because this is the pattern in which we live our life and it's the way that we're able to learn of our God. Now, uh, I want you to uh, listen very carefully this morning as we spoke of last week. Um, because the subject that we have been looking at during the course of the last uh, few weeks when I've been able to speak is the one key uh, a set of scriptures and instructions that our Lord Jesus spoke about, which he deliberately labored to the 11 disciples who were there in the room with him. Lisa, where was Judas at this time before chapter 15? put you on the spot. You keep reminding me of this, so you ought to know. In, He wasn't there, okay? Because Judas, the Scriptures tell us, he went out and it was what? It was dark. Okay, so the group that we have contained here in this wonderful section of Scripture, which our Lord Jesus gave in chapter 15 of, uh, of John's Gospel, are... Uh, The true disciples. So we are able to determine that this section of scripture when Jesus says, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So the issue that we learn very clearly and very simply right at the beginning, when we look at the context of these scriptures is that these scriptures are for believers What is being spoken of here is for you if you know and love the Lord Jesus as your Savior. If you have recognized your sin, confessed your sin, and you've now called out to Jesus. But every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, we just need to do a bit of a quick recap on uh, some of the... uh... Is it possible to put the... Slight technical hitch. Okay, I've, uh, tell you what, you sort it out in your time, I'll carry on in my time, in our time. So if you can remember back to the first uh, message that we had uh, regarding this section of scripture, we entitled it that the secret of living the Christian life is bearing fruit, So the question that you need to ask yourself, and you need to be considering as you sit here this morning, is are you a fruitful believer? Are you a fruitful Christian? Do you actually bear fruit? Is there any discernible difference between you and others in your Christian life? And we've also discovered very clearly as we look at this section of Scripture that uh, the Christian whilst the rest of the world seems to be panicking about identity as to who they are, what their gender is, and all these things. The Christian has nothing to be confused about when it comes to our identity. What do these verses tell us? First of all, our identity, who we are, we are branches in Christ. So there should be no confusion as to who we are. And then we discover what is it that we should be doing? Well, according to the scriptures, Jesus is speaking and he's labored the point, he's used the word abide about 15 times in these few verses that we have before us. And we know that when scripture is repetitive, there's a reason why it's repetitive, because we as human beings learn from repetition. We learn when we're told something over and over again. If anybody, as I said last time, has a three-year-old, how do you get that three-year-old to understand and to learn? You have to keep telling them. But one thing I've discovered is that um, as a shepherd, an under-shepherd in the church, it's the same thing. I'm not suggesting you're all three-year-olds, but I'm talking to myself here as well. We need to hear it again and again and again. I'm going to give you an example this morning as to what can happen when we take ourselves out of the environment that we should be. So the Christian has no problem with identity. We are to bear fruit, and if you remember, we discovered and discussed what it was, the fruit that God wants us to bear, and we know that primarily there is the fruit of proclaiming the gospel to others around us. I can't explain it, but God in his wisdom and in his love has chosen you and I to proclaim the gospel in a dark world. Now, Jesus had to return to heaven so that the Holy Spirit could come. If he hadn't gone back to heaven, the Holy Spirit wouldn't have come. And so we recognize that that was the catalyst that was brought into the life of the believer. Because all of a sudden, weak men became strong. All of a sudden, people that were locked away, holed up in some upper room with the doors barred, the windows blacked out, suddenly open the doors and go out and stand in the marketplace and proclaim the gospel. And they're not afraid to do so because the Holy Spirit has come and is living within them. And so we discovered that very clearly. We discovered also that this business of abiding generates something in our lives. It's called practical holiness, Romans six twenty-two. And we discover that to live the Christian life means there has to be a change. There has to be a difference within us. Sometimes we get the idea that uh, God does everything for us, and that's great. We don't have to do anything in terms of how we live our life. We can just carry on in the same way, and that's not true because we discover that we have to start living holy lives, lives that are set apart for the glory of God, sharing what we possess. This is one of the hallmarks of the Christian church and has been throughout the whole of the last 2,000 years is that we're not selfish people. If this morning you're sitting here and you know in your heart you're a selfish person that you don't share, then you need to start asking some questions. We discover that uh, so often God gives us so generously and we're reticent to give back to him. And as a fellowship, um, we've got lots of things planned for the first time I think ever. We haven't been able to get on and start... uh, our next copy of the cornerstone that we distribute because of finances. And that's the first time that's happened for a long time. And so if the Lord is speaking to you this morning, I would encourage you to look. Um, Have you been generous back to God? You know, we've got a work to do. Don't be afraid to give to the work and the ministry of this fellowship. Christian character, of course. You don't need to turn to Galatians 22 to 23, but we know what the fruit of the Spirit is, and of course Hebrews 13:15 reminds us of praising and thanking God is our fruitfulness. Now, I think I'm right in saying that the projector is now working. Is that correct? Okay, so uh, we'll just quickly—that's all these things that we have here. Okay, and then the second. Uh, lesson that we looked at was the fact that uh, the secret of bearing, uh, of fruit bearing, is abiding. So if you're a branch um, from the vine and you're separated from the vine, what's the fruit going to be like? There won't be any. Because it is only through our connectedness with the vine that we discover that we are able to bear fruit. And so, again, if your Christian life seems fruitless to you, there's probably a very good reason. What's your relationship? What's your abiding like? How are things going? Um, In a vineyard, the branches in that vineyard are producing fruit just by abiding. Um, Forgive me for putting it this way but you can't help but be fruitful if you're abiding in the vine. It's the natural course of events that takes place. The branch that is connected to the vine will do what it's there to do, it will produce fruit. And we as believers will discover that no longer do we have to try because if we've got our relationship right, if we're abiding, then we discover that by default we become fruitful. If you've been uh, through a a wine growing area, uh, you notice one thing very clearly. The vines are not struggling to produce fruit. That's what they're there for. And they produce the grapes. And they're not fighting amongst each other. Uh, There's this peace that you sense because they are simply doing what they are to do, which is to bear fruit. The branches calmly and confidently rest in the fact that they are abiding in the vine. So, what about us? What about our lives? Are we calmly abiding in the vine? Are we at rest? Are we at peace in our lives? Are we at peace with our relationship with God? Or is our walk a struggle? We get annoyed by other people. We get annoyed by the pastor, the church, some of the other people in the church. And so often our natural inclination is to blame everybody else. Our natural inclination is to blame God. Haven't you noticed how easy it is to say that God... This is your fault. It's your fault that I've lost my job. It's your fault that my wife has left me. It's your fault that my kids are just not interested in the gospel. It's your fault that my life is not going as it had been planned and as I wanted to see it take place. And so this morning brings us on to the next in this series, which is the subject of abiding, and it's not what you want to hear. It's not what people generally like to talk about. But Jesus makes it very clear when he talks. Uh, I've got the verses here, actually. He says in Verse 10 of chapter 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So wonderfully, he doesn't just simply point the finger at us and say, You've got to keep the commandments that I give to you. He then backs it up and says, Just as I have kept the commandments, Of my Father. So we see that we're not left without an example that is given to us. And then the next verse, verse 14, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Now, to me, that is one of the most wonderful verses in Scripture. You see, you and I can be friends of Jesus. Now, the friendship that's being spoken of here. Is a very, very interesting friendship. I want you to imagine uh, a king in a court, and he has beside him those people that he trusts, those people that he wants to share personally with. Now, a king wouldn't do that with everybody, it has to be earned. And suddenly, the Lord Jesus is looking at these 11 disciples. Judas is out groping around the dark somewhere. I always think to myself, it must have been cold as well, but it probably wasn't. It was just dark. And that's the privilege for you and I, is that we can actually be friends of Jesus. Jesus. And that's one of the most wonderful things to ever, ever comprehend. But it does require on our part, according to the verses here, according to what Jesus said, he says it very simply, very clearly, very to the point. He says, if, small word, big impact. If you don't, there's a problem. But if you do keep my commandments... You will abide in my love just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. And you're my friends if you do whatever I have commanded you. Now I'm going to do something that I haven't done ever before in our fellowship. Has anybody read this book here? It's entitled Goodbye Jesus. Any hands up? No? It's written by a guy called Tim Sledge. And uh, I ordered this book on Thursday, and I finished it uh, Friday evening. There's only 500 pages in it, but you see, for me to read 500 pages in that time is, uh, is quite a challenge. The one thing that's missing in this book is any understanding of John chapter 15. Let me tell you about Tim Sledge. He uh, uh, grew up in uh, Texas Houston, I think. And uh, from the age of 16, he believed that God had told him to be a preacher. God had led him to preach the gospel. And so from the age of 16, um, that's when he preached his first sermon in a Southern Baptist Convention church. Tim was uh, from the conservative side of the Baptist, the Southern Baptist Convention. He would uh, probably fall under the Uh, Heading of being somewhat Calvinistic. So that's the background that he was from. I'm not sure how the Southern Baptist Convention functions because there's a a massive war going on at the moment between uh, what you'd describe as uh, more Calvinistic people and then more Arminianist uh, people. But somehow it holds together, and I guess only by the grace of God. But Tim came from that uh, side, and he... uh, uh, shares in the, the, the account here a lot of detail about his life coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the book starts off by an account that he is uh, leading the funeral service of a man in his, I think, late 30s, early 40s, and the man was a teacher at one of the local Christian schools. And he was killed uh, by a, an 18-wheeler truck on the highway. Now, the problem that Tim Sledge had was that as he gave the, as he was in, uh, to lead the funeral service, he knew the details, but the church leaned on him and the family leaned on him not to tell the truth. So the details that he had were that the man who was a teacher in a Christian school had um, groomed a 14-year-old girl and slept with her. And then the authorities found out, and so he jumped in front of the 18-wheeler truck to bring his life to an end. And Tim is leading this funeral service with a 1,000-plus people, and he sees in the front row the girl and her mother, and he knows all the details, and yet he had to say things in the service which simply weren't true, because that's what he'd been instructed to do. And Tim calls these things exceptions to the rule of faith. I don't know if you've ever used that term, uh, the exception that proves the rule, and uh, all the way through the book, Tim comes up with different examples, which are the exceptions that prove the rule. And uh, as the book progresses, the list continues to grow. As a young uh, man of uh, 17, uh, the pastor and the associate pastor of the church uh, that, he was, uh, grow- that he'd grown up in, uh, wanted to take him to a, a conference. And there was a free evening, it was a uh, conference in another city away, and there was a free evening, and the pastor and the uh, associate pastor said, oh, let's go out to the cinema together. And the film had sex scenes in it and all sorts. And he remembers all the years later, the damage that that did, because he respected the men who were leading him at that time. And he says, yet another exception to faith. In other words, you can say one thing but live a life that's different, and then uh, he points out, and I just read it to you very quickly that there were concepts that he had been brought up to understand clearly and consistently and emphatically were impressed upon him because they were more than assumptions or beliefs. these are the rock solid truths, and the questioning any one of and, and, and if you questioned any one of them would be considered an act of rebellious arrogance. Some of the most important concepts were, the Bible is God's completely accurate valuation of himself. The Bible is the authority for everything we believe. We are all sinners destined for an eternity in hell. Jesus died for our sins and only he can forgive us. By confessing our sins and believing in Jesus, we can begin a new relationship with God that starts now and lasts forever in heaven. A spiritual battle is in progress as Satan works to discourage non-believers from embracing faith and and tempts Christians to sin. We need the spiritual power that comes through prayer, Bible study and worshiping together and regularly confessing our sins. This new life in Jesus calls for our highest commitment And that includes a willingness to share our faith with others. Now, if like me, when you read that list, you could tick all those boxes. Because that's exactly the position that I have. That's exactly the way I was brought up. But the point that he makes is that there was no questioning ever of anything. He then talks about his experience in Bible college. And I must admit, having read this book, if a a young person in our fellowship came to me and said, I think God's leading me to Bible college, I'd have to think twice as to whether I could really agree with it because the moral standards of so many of the Bible colleges are low. Um, I don't mention names particularly, but the college he went to was a very conservative college, one which I've heard has been very, very good indeed. I think Billy Graham attended it. But he talks about the moral standards of students within the college. And uh, he then says, and these, I guess, are the exceptions to faith. You know where this is going because he goes right through and he becomes the pastor of Kingsland Baptist Church in Houston. Starts off with a congregation of 300 and takes it right up to two and a half thousand. And after ten years of serving as the pastor in this church and seeing the growth, some of the elders realise that what he's actually preaching is not the word of God. What he's actually preaching is what people want to hear. Now, it's easy to fill a church when you preach what people want to hear. Uh, his messages became concerned about uh, the fact that we can help ourselves. Do I disagree with that entirely? Not entirely, because at the end of the day, there are things that we do, which if we stop doing them, would be a help to ourselves. But is that the only way forward? The answer is no, because I do believe that the answer to the questions that we have in our lives comes back to John chapter 15 and our abiding in Jesus. Because that's where our fruitfulness comes from. If we're joined into the vine, that's where it all comes from. So we fast forward towards the end of the book and uh, as I said, an absolutely fascinating read uh, of heartbreaking situations that took place, older ministers that were preying on younger ministers from a homosexual perspective, Um, churches that are badly organized and set targets for the pastor so that his pay is based on the size of the congregation, you know, we're not double glazing salesmen. The message that we have to preach is an offense to many, but we can always sugarcoat it, can't we? And so eventually he comes to the point in his life where a small group of the 30 elders and deacons suddenly realized that what he was preaching was not the gospel. And so they confronted him over it. And uh, he was devastated. Didn't see it coming, blindsided Throughout the whole book, Tim never once speaks about his relationship with Jesus. He talks about knowing Jesus. He talks about God a great deal. But in terms of his relationship with the Lord, it just doesn't come through. And finally, his marriage after 31 years comes to an end. He has two more marriages And the section that we finally come to is where he admits that he no longer has faith, but he says that it all began when he stopped going to church. When finally I gave up on the family of God. He says, I lost count of the number of churches that this was his wife at the time, Kimberly and I visited at least 20 different Baptist churches, Methodist churches, non-denominational churches, Unitarian churches, even a Catholic church. He says, I was weary, drained, and disenchanted. There were just too many church visits that spawned the same result of 48-hour post-Sunday morning depression. It was beginning to look like the only way to break this painful circle was to stop trying to find that elusive church where I would feel at home. I don't remember the congregation or the denomination or the date, but after visiting one more worship service, after hoping for one more time for that eureka moment, and then once again experiencing an overwhelming sense of defeat, it was time to stop. I was not going to go back to church again and then the remaining part of the book points out that from that time onward he lost any desire to have that relationship with God because you see in The natural world we say the same thing at work. When a pack of wolves decide to go after a sheep, they leave the pack the the, the flock and they look for the loner. They look for the one that's injured. They look for the one that's by itself. Because they know in the flock they stand a much smaller chance. But when they go for the one that's on its own, the probability of a kill increases greatly. Now, could Tim Sledge be applied to John 15? Well, we can tell from John 15 what's missing in his life. So the question, and he answers or tries to answer it himself, he says it's so easy for believers to say when somebody falls away from the faith, well, they never were saved in the first place. And we could apply that principle here, but in a strange sort of way, it doesn't really matter because the principle in the Scriptures tells us that it's our abiding in Christ, it's our abiding in the vine that will allow us to live a life that God wants of us to live and to have strength. So, the universal (coughs) fundamental laws that we see in, uh, in the world around us, in the universe around us, are very simply this, there are certain laws in the way that nature works and functions, they're all ordained by God. And the thing is that however hard we try, we have to obey these laws. Otherwise, things go wrong. Now, human beings, talking generally, have tried throughout our history to break the rules that have been set down for us. Um, We know that the speed of light is whatever that number is, it's big, it's fast. We know what gravity is, Um, you know. These are laws that God has created. And then I say to myself, so how does an Airbus A380 with 500 people on it stay in the sky? Well, that's because it follows another set of laws called the laws of aerodynamics. I'm not a scientist here, and if there are any scientists and you feel you need to put your hand up and correct anything in the next few moments, do so. But if the pilot of the A380 decides not to follow the certain laws of aerodynamics, and one of them is this, it's called the stalling speed. In other words, the A380 only stays in the sky because of certain laws that are there. And one of them is, if it slows down too slowly, it will fall out of the sky like the proverbial lead balloon. Now, why is this of interest to us? It's of interest to us because we have a God of order. We have a God who has created the world with certain things. If there's any farmers here, Chris, you're a farmer, aren't you? Okay, you know what time of the year to plant the seed, am I right? Okay, and if you don't plant it at the right time, I guess things go wrong. Is that the general principle? Yeah. Okay, well, I've got one farmer who agrees with me. And the Bible speaks about this, you know, there's a time for everything. There's a time for planting, a time for reaping. But the Bible also tells us that that law in nature is applicable to the law that God has ordained in our lives personally. So we discover that what we sow, we reap. Do you begin to see the connection now? So if you live and if you're prepared to sow in your life discord, you will reap discord. If you sow a lack of faith in your life, you will discover that you will reap a lack of faith. And so we discover very clearly that these universal laws are applicable to us in the Christian life. As well. To live the abundant, faithful Christian life that God wants us, the law says that we've got to be obedient. As I said, it's not what you want to hear sometimes, but it's God speaking. not me. We must obey God's laws in the spiritual realm. And so the question that I want us to begin to wind up on now, the question that we want to answer is why did God place such an imperative on our being obedient to him? Why make obedience a requirement of abiding? And then of course the question, how can we abide? Because it strikes me that this is a big problem. Tim Sledge in his book points out when he gets to the the last few chapters, he goes through all the reasons why uh, the Christian faith is just complete rubbish. So he's gone from a situation of leading a church from 300 or 500 to two and a half thousand. He's sold out for the gospel. He's really involved in his denomination. He goes from all of that to just rubbishing everything. And one of the points that he makes is he said, in the world, if you are a member of a club, uh, perhaps the Legion or something like that, you'll discover that 20% of the members do 80% of the work. And he said this, he said, if the church was different, you'd think that the statistic would be different, wouldn't you? And yet he says, universally accepted, 20% of the church do 80% of the work. 20% of the church give 80% of the resources of the church. The other 80, seem disinvolved. And he uses that as an example to try and say, there see, the church is no different. It's got the same problems, the same difficulties. I'd love to think in our fellowship that uh, the percentage was higher. I've got no time to work it out. I do know that there are a very few number of people who work incredibly hard. And I thank them particularly for the support that they give. And I would like to encourage you to consider if there's more you can do because we have a world which needs to hear the gospel. We live in a community which needs to hear the gospel. So the first um, point that I want to just clarify in a little more detail and and this this point should absolutely rejoice our hearts and it's this God obeys his own rules you see we don't have a God who makes it up as he goes along now there are some faiths religions that have what you describe as a fatalistic God. And the Muslim world is a classic example of this, because the salvation for the Muslim is based entirely on what they do. In other words, it's a works-based religion. If you can remember, I brought that leaflet that we would picked up in Toronto, a Muslim guy gave it, and point number five was, do your best to live like a Muslim. if I said to you, "Do your best to live like a Christian," would I be in any way right? I would be encouraging you to hypocrisy, because that's not what's important. Yes, there are times when God performs miracles and brings a higher law into play, but God, his usual mode of working is to obey His own laws that he's built into the universe. Now, this gives us enormous encouragement. Because it means, as you know, we're not saved by God's mercy. Have you ever considered that? How are we saved? We're saved by his justice. Now, his justice means that when certain things take place in our life, God has no ability to refuse us because he's acting justly toward us. You see, if I was God, heaven would be very empty <laughs> because my standard, you know I'd look at the outside. I'd look at the things people say and I'd say, don't meet the mark. There's no room. You don't think like I do. But God's justice means that when we're justified, he has to accept us. And so for the believer, unlike the Muslim, we have not a fatalistic God who says, well... I'll give that guy a go today, but tomorrow maybe not. So you and I, because God keeps his own laws, are able to have the satisfaction of knowing that we are acceptable to him. (laughs) You can't see the words on that, can you? We have seasons, and we have order in the universe. We know when the next full moon will be. We know when the tide will be in. We know when it'll be out. And if God once disobeyed his own laws, the universe would fall apart. I need to say something here about orderliness. And you might be thinking to yourself, this is a bit of a tangent. But having read um, this book, I realize that one of the biggest dangers that can come into a fellowship, it can be a church like this, it can be a house fellowship, it doesn't matter what it is. I attended a house fellowship for a few years back in England and it was only to discover that the man who was leading it had an agenda of his own. And that meant that his own views began to sneak in now. With a fellowship like this, I expect you all to bring your Bibles. I expect you all to look at the scriptures. I expect you all to listen. And if there's something which is not right that is being said, you come and talk to me. I expect the elders and the deacons to consult their Bibles regularly. And they know when we have meetings, I'll often say to them, are you reading your Bible? And I will also quite often say to them, How's your relationship with your wife? <laughs> because that's important. And when we read the scriptures, uh we discover that uh, Paul was very concerned about orderliness. Uh one Corinthians fourteen, forty he said, Let all things this is talking to the Corinthian believers be done in an orderly fashion in the church? Now, was he suggesting that they needed to have some sort of plank put up their shirts so that uh, they couldn't move and be free? No, he's not talking about that. Was he suggesting for one moment that the work of the Holy Spirit should be limited because it says in the Constitution you can't do that? No, he wasn't saying that. Um, What he was saying, though, is that this is a God of order. And he expects us to respect that orderliness and to follow the commandments that he gives to us. In other words, we don't make it up as we go along. I was in, uh, in hospital, as you know, recently, and a lady who goes to... Uh, it's called the Apostolic Church in Woodstock. And... Uh, <laughs> She said to me, oh, so you're the pastor of a Baptist church? She said, yeah. She said, the only thing with Baptists is that they keep going on about the Bible all the time. So I said, yeah, that is a bit of a problem, really. Guilty as charged, I'm afraid. She said, but don't you think it's great that you can come along to a church like ours? And the revelation that's given each week is new. It's from a prophet. And uh, she said, it's just so exciting because we hear how God is working. And and, And they tell us all sorts of new things. And so I said, so how do you know that what the prophet is saying to you is true? And she was quiet for a moment. And she said, well, because you believe them, don't you? I said, yes, but how do you know it's true? So I explained to her that whenever somebody says something, The first thing we do is turn to the scriptures and compare it. And if there is any confrontation between what the scriptures say and what the person says, we know it's not from God. Because the scripture will always um, be in line with what we're being told. So that's the first thing that we should always do. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not a God of confusion. If you're confused here this morning because of things that people have said or done, then you've got to go back and say, God, you're not a God of confusion. I need clarity. And that clarity will always come from his word because that's how he speaks to us. And as we abide in the vine, we discover that there is a natural um, uh, um, uh, understanding because we have within us the Holy Spirit and suddenly something that's being said, there's this little alarm bell that starts off ringing. Sometimes it's like a claxton going off, you know, one of those air raid warnings. Okay, and sometimes it's just a little bell and there's this voice and it says, hold on. I'm not a God of confusion. So why is there so much trouble, so much evil in the world today? I think it's important to remember that the scripture that we have here explains this point we must remember that the source of evil in the world is man, not God. Uh, somebody said to me, um, again, I think it was in, in, in the hospital having a conversation, and said, uh, said, of course, religion is responsible for all the wars in the world. And I'm thinking to myself, interesting history. <laughs> so I said, uh, okay, um, so let's just go for a couple of examples. Um, during World War II, uh, Adolf Hitler was responsible directly for the deaths of around 10 million people, six million of them that were Jews, and the other four million were people that he didn't like, like disabled people, homosexuals and so on. And I said, so at what point, did Adolf Hitler demonstrate any religious affiliation? And of course the answer is none. Stalin was an atheist. And whilst Hitler did his best to murder, or he murdered around 10 million people, how many did Stalin murder? 28 million. That's the ones they knew of. And he was an atheist. And yet people have this idea that evil is in the world because of religion now I'm not defending religion I'm not religious and I hope you're not religious because religion requires you following a set pattern a system there are some very good systems around I would even argue and say that having read this book Tim Sledge felt that his Calvinism was a good system. He was able to answer all the questions because of a system that had been presented to him. But he didn't have a relationship. He wasn't abiding in the vine. He didn't take the power that comes through that relationship. There's lots of points in Calvinism, very, very admirable but it's the point i'm trying to make is if we reduce it to a system there will always be a problem it was because of man's disobedience to god's law that sin came into the world and it is because men and women continue to disobey god's will that evil grows and destroys this world the same divine law that gives us food when we plant seed also gives sinners sorrow and death, Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. Because God obeys his own laws, the universe abides in him. It can't help but abide in him. And the same goes for us when we obey his word, then we too will abide in him. Friends, it's the law. It's the guarantee. And it's wonderful. To disobey God is to fly in the face of the whole universe. And this explains why the disobedient person has so much trouble. Not only inwardly, but outwardly. When the child of God obeys the will of God, everything in the world works for him. But when the child of God disobeys the will of God, everything works against him. Now you might say to yourself, but there are times when I know I've been obedient and I still see things going wrong. Well, God still wants us to obey. Yes, he continues to teach us and to grow us. And that's what John 15 is all about. And our suffering is only for a short while. So when Paul and Silas obeyed God by going to Philippi, um, I'm guessing that they didn't think for one moment that they'd end up in prison. You know, God, I'm doing what you want me to do. They were obedient. And they saw the results of their obedience even though it didn't go exactly perhaps as they had planned. So they saw this man and his family brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they saw a church planted. And they saw tremendous blessing taking place as to what was going on. Remember, everything in the universe obeys God's law, except man. And this brings us to the final point, which is something I need you now all to really listen carefully. So put your phones away, stop writing on whatever bits of paper it is and hear me out we do not abide abide by just having nice thoughts about God or feelings about God we abide when we obey God's will and this means submitting our will What's the important thing? Doing God's will. We do not just sit and say to ourselves, I must do the will of God. We actually have to get on and do it. Sorry about the spelling on there. You can fill in the gaps. It's a you see, religion simply says do this, do that. And it's possible that in doing that, doing this, you will fulfill at least part of the will of God. Tim Sledge talks of the fact that uh, the Southern Baptists, you couldn't go dancing, you couldn't go drinking. Uh, The youth group was segregated, no boys and girls mixing couldn't go to the cinema, no TV. And if you did any of those things, then the suggestion was that you weren't in the will of God. Now, (laughs) best will in the world, folks. None of that's got to do with the will of God. What we do find, though, is how we live our lives would it determine the things that we do, the places that we go. Our relationship with him would determine that there are some things we can't do. Not because the law says that, but because we no longer want to. And so the note that we finish really here is this, we do obey because we want to. We obey because we want to do the will of God. We obey because that's now what our heart's desire is. It's the thing that's important to us. Too many Christians settle for an intellectual experience. I've met some of them. They're great at studying the Bible. They know the Bible inside out. They can go to the passage and the verse to support their viewpoint. They follow all the YouTube videos that they can possibly get hold of to try and demonstrate the facts that they're trying to make to hold to. They can know all the facts, all the definitions. They can even explain doctrines which are really deep and the rest of you are thinking, oh my word, what are they talking about? Doctrines you've never heard of. The vicarious life of Christ. Have you ever looked at that one? And if you go too far down that rabbit hole, it's not the death of Christ that saves you. It's the life he lived. But the Bible says it was his death. Others have an emotional experience. They live for the next buzz. They want to cultivate spiritual feelings. I feel, you know, today I feel great. But what about tomorrow? When you don't feel great. Sometimes in our churches, we can generate a lot of noise, a lot of chaos. But it's not spiritual feelings that we're after. It's knowing and abiding. We must realize that the will is the center of the Christian life. We obey God not because we feel like it, not felt like it, feel like it, but because it's the right thing to do. And we need to graduate from obeying because we have to, into obeying because we want to. And Galatians, sorry, Ephesians 6 verse 6, Says it all, doesn't it? Doing the will of God from the heart. That's it. And that's the message that we have. Thank you for listening. I appreciate uh, you coming, but I pray with all my heart that you'll begin to understand that it is indeed our abiding in Him that enables us to grow and to live and to experience the abundant life. And I would say uh, that if anybody wants to rush out and buy this book, I'd be very careful because this is of Satan, okay? Young people, I don't wanna see a copy of it in your hands. I'm happy to talk about it a bit more, but be very, very careful. It's produced by Amazon Okay, and I wonder, manufactured by Amazon, Bolton, O-N, is that Ontario, (laughs) O-N? I wonder why they've got such a keen interest to see that book promoted.